0: all right hello everyone thank you for joining us my name is daryl Urbanski, your host as always and today we are joined by one of the ogs of online marketing jack born he's a serial entrepreneur the founder and ceo of deadline funnels a fantastic online marketing tool he's also successfully grown and sold previous businesses and for seven years he was the secret weapon behind the scenes for well-known guru perry marshall so i've asked jack to join us here today to talk about the timeless proven and tested methods for making money online. So Jack, thank you so much for joining us, my friend.
1: How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Really, really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, we're doing this call. You know, Jack's so kind to 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 join us. He's got, you know, his own company, his own clients, his own family and and kite surfing to do, but he offered to come sit down with me for a little bit. So for those of you watching, you know, get your pen and paper out. It's gonna be great. And I already know it is, but before we get started, Jack, how did you even get involved in business and marketing? Like are your parents entrepreneurs or
1: Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So my, I I do come from a line of entrepreneurs, sort of entrepreneur light. I don't want to take anything away from my, from, from my dad or my, you know, my uncles or my grandfather, but my, my grandfather came from a long line of veterinarians, but my, my grandfather wasn't just a veterinarian. He, he owned several veterinary clinics. So your your typical veterinarian, I'm going to get the average, not hundred percent accurate, but I think the typical veterinarian doesn't make a, a huge income compared to a doctor, even though, from what I've been told, the training is about the same. But my grandfather got relatively wealthy by owning several veterinary clinics, and so it's having that equity stake and you know building a team and and also owning real estate. So it's it, it was really this idea of leveraging leveraging your money, you know, leveraging your assets. So you know, if you're going to double your income and you're, let's say a veterinarian, you're not going to do it by working twice as many hours I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. So in the same way, I think that type of thinking of where can I find leverage in my business or how can I leverage up my skills or my reputation, or there's a whole bunch of different key leverage points that we can find in our business, but that's really where the growth comes from. So that, I would say my grandfather, even I didn't, spend a whole lot of time with him the the moments that I did spend with him he tried to impart on me some some business wisdom which the seeds didn't bear fruit immediately but you know I, they they blossomed down the road i was not i don't have one of those stories that you'll you'll hear on a lot of podcast interviews where i say oh my gosh i was an entrepreneur from day 6 and here i sold this and then i sold this you know i really didn't have that vision right away. I was busy playing sports and being a kid and I, and I really wasn't hyper-focused on, you know, making, making a million dollars, you know, that, you know, those sorts of interests came, came much, much later. My father was a partner in a medical practice, OBGYN practice in Miami. So I grew up in Miami, Florida. And when it, you know, when it was time for him to move to the northern part of Florida, to Punta Vedra, he he sold out his piece of that business. So you know he had he had some leverage there. It wasn't I wouldn't call it the same as you know what a lot of us entrepreneurs do, where you come up with an idea, you're starting from literally zero, and you're you know building it up from nothing. But still, it it had an entrepreneurial bent to it. You know he wasn't you know working for some multinational corporation, it was, you know, six other partners, and they were growing this practice. And, and, you know, so you try to market it, and do those sorts of things, and you build out your, your team. So in terms of my entrepreneurial background, that's, you know, in in terms of my influences growing up, I would say that's, that's as entrepreneurial as it got.
0: Got it. And so how did you cut your teeth? Did you were you, did you work for any of your, your parents or your relatives in their business? Like, what was your first kind of experience with you know, the key drivers of business growth?
1: Um, so I, I, I did work summers at the veterinary clinic. One of the most important things it taught me was that I didn't want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> I learned that pretty quickly. I, I I tell my daughter that it's really valuable. So I have two daughters. So I tell my oldest daughter, it would be really valuable for her. And I wish someone had told me to spend my younger years. So she should spend her years quickly figuring out things that she doesn't want to do and then seeing what the patterns are. And then maybe you'll bump into something that you realize, Oh, wow, this is, this is really pretty interesting. But I, I think building that list of things that you definitely don't want to do is super valuable. I wish that I, had not kept going back out of laziness, you know, every single Christmas break or summer break going back and doing the same job just because it was laziness. I wish I'd branched out and said, okay, let's find more things that I hate doing, you know, and and had that type of attitude about it. So I did, I did work for my uncle and for my grandfather at the veterinary clinic. And there were a few opportunities for my grandfather and for my uncle to kind of impart some, some ideas on me that again, blossomed. Further down the road, because at that time I was, I was in college. And so I really wasn't, I I think I remember the the first time that I think that I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur was actually when I was graduating college and and I'd been started reading some, some, some business related books and some, there, there wasn't nearly the wealth of information that there is today but it was stuff like real kind of basic salesmanship stuff. There wasn't a ton of entrepreneurs sharing their their information as there is today, weren't podcasts and things like that. So I think a lot of it was kind of a, a mixture of sales and marketing combined with, you know, probably some, some personal development type stuff, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, some stuff like that. And so, you know, I remember reading a Zig Ziglar book and it was, you know, I, I was still in college. I wasn't selling, but it was where that's that's where I was first introduced to this idea that I think the way that he said it was something along the lines of selling can either be the highest paid profession. What is it? The highest is something like the highest income hardest profession or the lowest income easy profession. And so it just really depends on your your approach and your attitude as, as well as a whole bunch of other things, probably the product that yeah. you're selling and the trends in the marketplace. But it was this idea that that really kind of started to blossom in my mind of wait a second, you can you can divorce the there you could separate you know time spent doing something and the actual economic output. You know, yes. obviously there you know you can't do nothing unless you're a trust fund baby. But the idea isn't necessarily okay, well, if I want to earn more money, I just have to you know spend more. If you got oh, more effective yeah. at yeah, if, if I if I'm more effective at my closing skills and prospecting skills, then I can outsell and therefore out-earn someone who's mm-hmm. technically in the same job and maybe working more hours than I am because yeah. the results are just you know how much did you sell? And right. so even though a book on this, you know, sale, like closing techniques and sales and, and becoming a professional salesperson isn't technically, you know, how to become an entrepreneur, how to, how to start up a business. That's really where those ideas came up. And I remember telling my dad at graduation because I, at first I was going down this path of, of a, a pre-med course load. And at, at a certain point I had decided, pre, you know, medicine's not for me. And so when I graduated, I graduated with a Spanish degree. And, you know, my my dad's like, you know, I feel feel bad for my dad. He's, you know, I can only imagine what the guy was thinking. He's like, I, I paid really good money for my son to go to four years at this really nice college, the University of Virginia. And so like he's graduated the spanish degree like WTF. And so as diplomatically as he could he, he said so what are you going to do and i remember through the the haze of of alcohol that i was i was under at the time i i said well i think i want to be an entrepreneur and and he's without hesitation he goes well i don't know how to do that. And that was that was <laughs> the end of that conversation. I'm like all right well good talk dad. You know and so yeah i it it, it wasn't It wasn't like immediately after graduation, I started up a business and, and, you know, the rest is history. I I really, I really kind of, kind of wandered the desert for a while in terms of jobs and and did not make very much money until I started up. I mean, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead. Do you want me to, do you want me to pause? It's it's fine. No, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I eventually, so I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff, but basically eventually I ended up like in the late nineties, I ended up working for Merrill Lynch. I went through three years of their apprenticeship program. It wasn't called that, but it's basically your, as long as you hit certain benchmarks and and your job really is to bring in high net worth clients, people who high net worth at the time was the minimum was $250,000 of investable assets. And I'm sure it's higher now but the idea wasn't that we're picking the stocks you, you you put them with in-house money managers or outside money managers and anyways so the the whole idea like it 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 really was a it was more advanced than a sales job but it really was a networking slash sales job and so if you hit certain benchmarks they would give you bonuses that basically were you know 10xing what you normally would get paid for bringing in that size of client because they wanted you to be able to earn a decent income if you hit certain goals. But then once you got out of that training program, now you're flying solo and you're on your own. And there was a real cliff in terms of like, okay, well, like you hit all these benchmarks. So... You know, you would think coming out, okay, well, the next year is going to be higher and the next year is going to be higher. But there was really a a pretty big drop off and you had to figure things out pretty quickly. What I figured out was that the people who were succeeding were basically buying into some older guy or gal's book of business. So it was like the father in law, you know, brings in the son in law and he's going to take over the book of business and that's going to be the father in law's retirement. You know, so if you're not stepping into a situation like that, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really, really challenging to make that business work. So I ended up running into a client that had their business there, and they were being written up in the paper for having this exciting startup in Jacksonville, Florida. And so I ended up talking to him. and I ended up working for him. Absolutely hated the job, but after. So, but when looking back, I actually like if I ran into the guy, either 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 him or my direct manager, I would actually thank them. It would sound like an insult, but honestly, I would thank them that it was such a miserable experience working for them that like it, it forced me out. Like, I'm like, I I don't care what it is. Like I'm not working for someone else ever again. And I remember calling up my wife and I said, I just, I just had a a fight with the boss, not a physical fight, but like we were yelling at each other's face and we pretty much decided at the same time, That uh, I wasn't cut out for corporate America. And she's like, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll get it going. And one of the things that I distinctly remember at that time, sort of a tale of two friends, there was a a dear friend of mine named Scott, and then another guy who's, I'm going to call him Dave, I'm blanking on his name, but it's going to come to me in a second. And I told both of these friends of mine who I'd known for years, Hey, I'm, I'm going out on my own. And they're both like, Oh, what are you going to do? Uh, and at the time the answer was, I think I'm going to try my hand at, at web design. I'm going to do custom websites for people. And Scott's reply was, that's awesome. I want to I wanna hire you to do my website. And I'm like, holy crap, crap. Like I, I don't know anything about this, but this guy's willing to put his money behind me. Yeah. And I'll and i figure it out as I go. And and the other guy said, told me all the reasons why that was a crappy idea, basically, you know, shit on my dreams. And I hope I'm allowed to say that. But anyways, he yeah, he, he you know, he he told me, he told me why, you know, like web designers weren't gonna make it and all that sort of stuff. And after he like ranted for about two minutes he paused and there was, I didn't say anything. He's like, I, I just kind of pissed on your parade, didn't I? And I'm like, yeah. And that was, that was honestly like the last time that we spoke. Like it's just like, look, like, this is, this is well, but, 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 you know, I mean, this is the, the journey is hard enough, right? You, you don't, I, I didn't decide at that time, like, okay, I'm never going to talk to right. this guy again, but it's right. just like, you need to keep yourself surrounded with people that are going to support you, even if they're saying like, Hey, okay, that business venture wasn't so well thought out. I mean, you don't need people blowing smoke in your direction, but you need people believing in you because it's hard enough with all the self-doubt and imposter syndrome and stuff that's going on to have people in your life who, who are basically waiting for you to fail and expecting you to, to fail. Like you don't need yeah. that crap. Right. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: I feel like most people always remember their first sale. Like I remember my martial arts school, the first person when I launched my school that paid me. And I remember in my head, I was like, Wait, really? I can get paid to teach yeah. martial arts. Even I remember my book, this guy, a friend of mine, a millionaire, I'd met through some mastermind groups and just never, he was like, I was telling him about my book launch. He's like, I'm going to be your first customer, you know? And he bought my book and it was just such a, like you just, you need that, especially in the earliest days. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, yeah. Yeah. yeah So, so this guy was your first customer and that's how, that was your first kind of business was building the websites.
1: Yeah, I was, I, so I built his website for the princely sum of a thousand dollars. I mean, that was, that was my start. You know, it's, it's kind of silly to think about it now, but it, you know, at the time I'm like, holy cow, like someone's going to pay me a thousand dollars to, to, to do this. I don't even like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think, I think the website probably showed it, but, but, but God bless him. You know, he, yeah. he believed in me and we're, you know, close, close friends to this day. But what, what was the original question about your
0: first business? That was your first client with your first business. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, so I, I actually spent the next year doing odd jobs. I mean, some really, really like, so one of, the, one of the jobs that I had was actually, so a I, I t- guy that I played softball with worked for Court Furniture, which was, a, a I think Warren Buffett invested in Court Furniture at one point. Anyways, they're a, a furniture rental agency. And so what he, this was shortly after 9-11, one of the things that this guy decided to do was he he would get contracts from people who needed cubicles put together. And then I would load up the truck with all the cubicle gears, like all the things that build a cubicle. Like you never think like, how is the cub- cubicle made? Well, you know, I got to learn how a cubicle is made. And so I would I would drive the truck hour and a half across Florida to some remote location. And then I would spend the afternoon setting these things up. And uh, and I and, and at one point I thought to myself, it's kind of funny that my part of my breakout of prison is building prisons for other people. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's it is kind of ironic.
1: But I was doing these odd jobs while at the same time I decided that I was going to start a website that was going to be so. The last job, that last official corporate America job that I had was at a healthcare agency, and so I thought, huh, what if what if I created basically an eBay of these travel nurses? That's what they're called. And so I decided to, so I I bought a piece of code on hot scripts, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it's a $70 PHP script. I had no idea how to code. So I went to Barnes and Noble and I know I'm dating myself with all these references, but I bought a thick ass book that was called the PHP 4 Bible. So I don't, I don't, even though my team uses PHP, like it's, it's a PHP nine or 10 or something like that. So this is this is again, back, like 2000, yeah. 2002, 2001, that, that, okay. that year. And so I just started going through it page by page, starting with the introduction and just going through and like looking at the code because the, the code itself didn't work. And so I had to go through and figure out like this, this $70 piece of code that I purchased that was gonna be the infrastructure for this website, how to make it work. And I finally figured it out and in the process taught myself some PHP code. And that was kind of the beginning of my of my programming days and so after about a year of offering that website that ugly website service you know but it, but it was um it, it really it really was connecting the so i was making the marketplace between the healthcare providers and the people that were these agencies like basically job hunters and i was providing it for free because i wanted to make it as frictionless as possible you know get enough nurses get enough job seekers and job suppliers that then I could start charging. So after about a year, my very supportive wife, and I mean that sincerely, came to me. And after a year of me working these odd jobs, like to keep money coming in, and we didn't have kids at the time. And she had started her own business. She came to me and she said, Hey, babe, I think it's time to fish or cut bait, which in the South means it's time to launch this sucker and see what we got, yeah. you know, yeah. time, time to open it up. So so that's what we did. And so this was. This is before Jeff Walker had codified his, his launch Launch. process. So I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew, okay, I'm going to have, like, I'm going to send out a series of emails. Here's how I'm going to price it. And then I'm going to have a deadline. And so this was really my first, I didn't know it at the time, but this was the first introduction to the power of deadlines. So I started sending out emails saying, Hey, we have this charter membership. Here's what it includes and got a few sales come in, but. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've been wasting a year of my life. Life. (laughs) So I keep sending out, but but I'm like, I'm going to stay the course. I keep sending out emails. It was like a five day sequence. And then at the end I said, okay, today's the last day, last chance to to get on board. And that's when $26,000 came in, which for me at the time was like hitting a home run. I mean, I, I was, I was just over the moon. I mean, it's, it felt for me, it felt like the first time that I made a sale online because it, you know it—it it, just—it it indicated that I wasn't going to have to go back to work. I was going to be able to make this my livelihood because it wasn't just the 26 grand. I was going to get somewhere between about five to 15 grand of recurring revenue ongoing because some people paid up front for a year and some people were paying monthly. monthly. Yeah. So it was a nice mix of, of annual, quarterly, and monthly. Mm. And so, you know, when I calculated it out, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have to go back to corporate America. This actually worked. Like if I keep going, I'm going to be able to make this. And so I did a mixture of that and consulting projects for the next few years. And then I got an email. I was on Perry Marshall's list. So Perry Marshall's another OG. So I had been really, i have been on his newsletter off and on for, for some time. But during this period where I was on his newsletter, he sent out a few emails saying that he was running a competition, sort of a apprentice style competition to find two positions. One was what he called a content czar, which if you know Perry, he comes up with weird names for stuff. So the Content Czar, which was going to be someone who was going to basically remix some of his content and come up with, you know, new articles, new emails, new blog posts, new products. And the other one was affiliate manager. And since I had been both selling as an affiliate and selling through some affiliates, so I, I felt like I'm I'm going to go for this. I'm going to give this a shot. So I applied for the position. There was a series of, I think four or five, four or five competitions. And I ended up winning and worked for Perry for, I thought it was going to be a six month, six month deal. And then I was going to move on because I really wasn't interested in working on someone else's team, team. but I thought this would be a great learning experience, great opportunity to network and which it was, but fast forward six years later, you know, Perry and I, like I had helped Perry with a lot of his marketing and a lot of his, you know, business growth and surviving the 2008 2009 downturn and all those sorts of things and so it was it was a really really fun exciting time got to network and meet a lot of great people got to know perry better and uh, yeah it was it was was a lot of fun i eventually split ways with perry on a you know we still talk to this day he's a great guy but i needed to i needed to take a run at I, i had started getting back into like that entrepreneur spirit I had kicked in about two to three years into working with Perry I started building basically some some side hustles that started to really get traction and it got to the point where my attention was really split he deserved to have someone focused hundred percent on growing his business and I deserved to see where this would go and so that was when I parted ways with Perry on good terms and built my software business
0: I love that I love that so let, let's unpack a couple of things because there's just been some Nuggets that you've already dropped in this. So first off, in the beginning, you started really talking about spending time figuring out what you don't want to do. And I think that's an important thing as an entrepreneur, because it's one thing to say that you're going to leave your job and start a business, but it really does take time. And I'm speaking for personal experience to find product market fit and even product market founder fit. And so you really do need to take time to to figure that out and to just, you, you know, it's a weird thing where you don't necessarily learn from doing, you learn from iterations. So you really have to go out and and, and fail and try and fail. So a buddy of mine, we used to always say roof and ramen. Like when you're an entrepreneur, the baseline metric is, can I buy enough ramen that I don't die of starvation? And can I keep a roof over my head? while I get as many iterations of this out there as I can. And I I love that. You've talked about, you know, really focusing on being able to getting good at prospecting and closing and that certain skill sets can help you leverage your income earning capacity in a day through just being, you know, more proficient at things that have greater leverage versus just trying to bang your head, trying to squeeze more hours out of a day, which doesn't necessarily exist. You talked a lot about the power of networking. And helping grow and build sales and in your story, even you talk about how through people, I think a a key lesson to learn here and an issue I I see a lot with other online entrepreneurs, it's really tough to sit alone in a room cackling to yourself like a mad scientist and launch something to the world and have it be a success right off the bat. One of the things that I love is that a lot of your story talks about interaction and collaboration with lots of other people. And I think that's an important thing for people to hear, especially at the time of this recording, we've been under quarantine a lot. You really do need to engage and interact with a lot of other people and work on building that network and you know, and, and sharing. So that was one, another important one. Learning how to code was a skill that you learned that allowed you to leverage your time and effort. But what I really love, because it kind of touches my heart on how I got I started internet, was that you just started. And your first promotion was a series of emails building up to a deadline. It was just a simple five-day sequence, you said. And I think that that's important because anyone listening to this, anyone can put together a five-day promotion. Anybody right right now can do five, five, five emails if that's all they got and that they stayed the course. You stayed the course. I love mm-hmm. that. And, you know, I, my, my story wasn't as great as you. I was 17 hitchhiking out to the West coast of Canada and I was trying to get a job. And what I did is I went to the chamber of commerce website and I scraped all the emails and I had like a four step email series because I was going to hitchhike over there. And then I wanted to have a job when I got there. And so it was like my, my resume, a PowerPoint, why should I hire Daryl? And like a last chance, like I'm showing up and better get in on my calendar or else, you know? And so that was my I was 17, but I just, that formula just, it seems to work really well. Just a simple announcement, some follow-up info and a countdown to a deadline is really powerful. And that, yeah. yeah. If I
1: could, if I could, if I could, if I could could underline just a few other things that I kind of skipped over, but I think when I look back to the story that I just told you, which I hope wasn't too long, but one of the other things that I did right is I'll, I'll mention two of them. One is when I was pricing this this charter membership, I had two thoughts go on in my head. And luckily the more intelligent one, the bolder one, won out because, and you'll see why in a second. So I think one of the things that we do as an entrepreneur, and sometimes I still suffer from this, is that we undervalue and underprice our products and services. So what I did. So initially, my thought was, well, how much am I going to charge for this? I've been offering it for free for a year. Now I'm going to start charging for it. You know, and I knew that the website wasn't beautiful. Like I was a one man band. I, I had Fiverr didn't exist. I even if it had, I didn't have the the guts and the self-confidence to say, I'm going to invest in someone to do my graphic design, all this sort of stuff, all, this, all the things that we all take for granted now that we just know is a smart thing to do. And so th- there was a lot of self-doubt in my mind, but it was like, it was time to find out, scratch the lottery ticket and see what you got here. And so what I decided to do. And so initially my thought was, okay, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll charge hundred bucks. I want to, maybe, could I get away with 150 bucks a month? And then I thought, okay, wait a second. I've got I've got 40 people who are 40 companies that could potentially be paying me. So let's just work backwards from there. If I don't want to go back working for the man and I'm not going to get 100% of these people, like what if I got a third? Like if I got a third and so it's roughly 10 to 12 and I was charging them say three to 400 bucks a month. I mean, these numbers seem ridiculously low now, but if I was charging 300 bucks a month for 12 people, then I wouldn't have to go back to work. Again, $2,001, no kids, you know, very small mortgage. Um, But I knew my numbers. And so I worked backwards from what do I need in order for this to be a success. And so I ended up at a number that was two or three times what I would have charged had I just gone from what do I feel comfortable charging. And As a result, like if I had charged based on what I felt comfortable, I would have gotten probably the same number of people to say yes, maybe one or two extra, but it wouldn't have been enough. Now I would have had a part-time job. So I didn't want, I wanted it to be all or nothing. I mean, ideally enough for me to not have to go back to work, but I I didn't want to be in a position where it's like, okay, good news is that you got 12 people to say yes. Bad news is you're not charging enough. And so now you got to go back to work. And this is now a part-time gig. You know, and, and by the way, when it, when it comes to staying the course, my feeling was like, if I don't, if I don't get enough people to say, yes, I'm pulling the plug on this thing. Like I'm shutting the thing down. You know, I just, again, this was, this was my burn the, burn the boats on the beach moment. The, the other, the other thing that I think isn't right for everyone, but I think is right for more people than the most people would realize is the value of taking some time to apprentice with someone else. So if you don't have it figured out, but you see someone who's doing what you want to do, why not take six months, a year, like take, see if you can get a paid apprenticeship to learn from actually doing, get, get paid on from someone else's, you know, to be on someone else's team and to learn what they learn to think how they think, and to see the mistakes that they're making, because look, Perry made some mistakes. There's things that, you know, I'd learned from some of the brilliant things that he said. And I also learned from some of the mistakes that he made. And so it was a great opportunity for me, not just a network for me to learn on, you know, with very, very little risk so that when I was ready to step out of the shadows, I was much more mature, much more knowledgeable. And I had a strong network of people.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I think that for anyone listening, again, if you're starting out and struggling, a couple of things to take from that is, you know, first off, charge what you need to charge to, to do it. You know, if your goal is to do it full time, then, I mean, I remember when I first started launch my martial arts school back in the day, I, one of the guys that I spoke to had run a successful martial arts school. He said, you'll never make it work doing this part-time. It just takes too much energy, too much time, too much focus, too much attention, it's full time or not. So he does one of the things that he really emphasized on me. And it kind of like, sound like you said that there, you had to burn the boats in the beach moment, but also at the same time, you know, you, you, I think there's a ton of value in what you said, that if you're just starting out to get experience in someone else's wing, have them pay you to apprentice. Yeah. I mean, I'm just repeating what you said. I think that's just fantastic advice. So either on one end, you need to figure out what you need to charge to make it work and you need to be willing to lean in and do what you have to do to make the partnerships and you know and add more value You know, I think often, like you said, people are really quick to discount, but instead of discounting, find a way to add more value to it if people think it's not enough. Don't necessarily drop your prices. Think of what can I do to bundle this, you know, and make it bigger, better, better. And then again, the apprenticeship thing is is huge. Like that's how that's how so many trades were taught for years and centuries, right? Like you would apprentice under someone. And I think that's that's fantastic. Now, what do you feel were some of the greatest mistakes that you saw yourself and others making? Not just Perry, but just in general. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you feel people have made?
1: So a mistake that I made was not focusing, focusing down on the, the business that was working. Several years later, I met someone at a conference who, who basically was in the same business that I had been at, at the, like, basically I, I really didn't like the either side of, of the business of the business network that I had built. You know, I wasn't in love with the companies. I wasn't in love with, you know, some of the attitudes of the healthcare workers. They were, anyways, I, it, just, it just wasn't something that I wanted to get involved with on a day-to-day basis. I was really doing it as an opportunity. Like I saw an opportunity in the market, but I really didn't, focus in on how can I build this? How can I grow this? How can I scale this? I wanted to move on to other things because it just didn't interest me. And so luckily the business continued to spin off cash, you know, as it was, you know, slowly declining over, over the years, but then, you know, it wasn't like two years after I had like let the thing basically die out. I met someone who basically had started up a business in the same, like basically the same concept a few years after me and had really focused on it and had sold out for a few million dollars. And so that was, that was a big lesson of, you know, I, I, maybe it wasn't the right opportunity for me, but the value of focus, you know, so once you have something to really, to really focus in on it and to grow it. Don't spread yourself too thin. Interestingly, that was one of the, you know, and, and I would say this to, 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 Perry, if you were, you know, if you were here, I've told him it before, but that was one of the mistakes I, I had seen Perry do was to spread himself too thin. He also, you know, I saw him kind of commit the mistake of, you know, what, what got you to this point in your business isn't what's going to get you to the next point in your business. So, you know, an effective, Webinar and email sequence, you know, got you to a certain level, but, you know, to get to the next level, maybe you have to be really adept at being a skilled leader and attract the best talent and, you know, man, it prioritize, you know, focus and prioritize rather than continuing to, to hire, 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 Mm -hmm. and thinking that you, the, the solution is, you know, like your one sales letter, like he really bought into the idea of you're you're just the, this Dan it's Kennedy idea of you're, you're, yeah. you're one sales that are away from you know bazillions of dollars and y- you know you there there are some problems that increased sales aren't gonna aren't gonna fix it's like showing up at the well with a bucket with not just a hole in it but the entire bottom of the bucket is missing like if if you if there are certain there are certain problems that more selling more revenue more top line revenue isn't going to solve.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's really important. And actually to speak to that for the people that are listening, last year we spent, I spent like $50,000 on some research. You and I talked about this in the pre-interview stuff. And we found after looking at all these systemic reviews, systemic meta-analysis and systemic reviews of research on what it takes for a company to be successful, there's actually eight categories. And that's self-efficacy, that's strategic planning, market intelligence, marketing strategy, sales strategy, and skills, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. so, like you said, if you have really good marketing strategy and you have really good sales strategy and skills, but you have terrible market intelligence and you're in a market that's diminishing or you're in a market that's beginning to become obsolete, that's, you know, that's a big mistake, that's a strategic planning error. If you've got tons of sales, but your team isn't being productive, right? They're not effective. They're not personally effective with their time. They get ticket requests in, but they're not being answered. That's a self-efficacy issue. Then obviously they're not gonna perform as well as they could, right? If you're doing all these things, but you don't know how the world is perceiving you, you don't have any business intelligence feedback loops you could be, you know, running yourself into the ground and not really paying attention. Even if you're making a ton of money, but you're not managing it well. We talked about money management. Then that's right. Then that's going to burn. So, like you said, like you know, it's it's, it's tough to have a magic bullet. Sales is the lifeblood of any business, but especially in today's day and age, and this isn't, and we're not talking about Perry, this is just like a common theme, right? So, you know, but you know, more sales doesn't necessarily equate to better outcomes, especially in such a transparent world. If all the other things aren't lined up, then it really, you know, it's, it's kind of that catch 22. I've talked to some people, they're really big on just sell it and then build it. And then some people are like, no, 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 I want to build it and then sell it because then I can make it better and have fewer complaints and all that stuff, but it is a trade-off. You know, like if you sell it first, you have proof of concept before you have product, but then you may not have a good product. Right. Whereas if you build it first, you lose time and energy and you may have something nobody wants to buy. And then you might have something you can't sell. What do you think about that? Like the, the two sides of that equation, you know, sell it, then build it or build it, then sell it.
1: Are you, are you talking about things like courses and masterminds and and things like that? Even Uh, a software software?
0: product, because even with a software product, you know, software takes a ton of time to develop. Yeah,
1: totally. So
0: so yeah, yeah, and it's expensive. So do you sell it and get a bunch of beta users in on something that they may just ditch and be like this thing's full of bug and abandon? Like it's a it's a weird question. And you might even just have an existing product already, but you want to launch it to a new market, but it needs a facelift to do like you know, that's
1: yeah. So I I think I think there are some. There are plenty of situations where you can basically co-create, it's called customer, customer development in the software space. You're, you're interviewing potential customers, finding out about their pain points, really getting clear on how they're trying to solve their current problems. What money are they currently spending? I'll, I'll give out a resource, which which I'll warn you has a really strange title, but the, the title of the book is called The Mom Test, M-O-M. And It's actually, so it's on this topic of customer development. So it's for the person who should read it is the person who, especially if you're getting into software, but this could be almost anything. If you're entering a new market and you think, okay, this is going to make me just tons of money. It's going to be super successful. You owe it to yourself to go and interview your potential future customers. And the way that you phrase your questions will determine the quality of the answers that you get and quality being high quality, being truthful, not what someone thinks that you want to hear. So the the reason why this author calls it the mom test is because his premise is that when you ask the questions, the way that he teaches you, that even if you are interviewing your mother who wants you to succeed, is it like, it basically is going to tell you, like, doesn't want to hurt your feelings. and wants to tell you that all of your ideas are brilliant, wonderful, you know, rainbow colored ideas that even she is going to be able to give you accurate feedback and and therefore you'll get a good, pretty strong signal whether something is viable or not. And so that's that's the concept behind it. So back to your original question, you know, you certainly there, there's sort of I, I would call it the Goldilocks principle. So there's certainly there's 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 launching too late, like spending a whole bunch of time trying to build the perfect product, and you should have launched six to twelve to forty eight. Months earlier, and and you launched too late, and someone else got more market share, or you ran out of time, resources, or passion. That so I've done that before, by the way. There's also there's also launching too early, and delivering something that isn't even a minimum viable product. It's it's really just you're you you're just being opportunistic. And I and I, and honestly, I'm just going to be very pointed about this. I see a lot of people who would either classify themselves or I would classify them as internet marketers who are looking for an audience where they can come up with, okay, if I tell them this about the software that I'm building, like they're going to be super excited. I'm going to, you know, do this mega launch. And, you know, in, in terms of actually building out the software, like, yeah, I'll, I'll hire a team overseas to, to build the software, but basically I'm going to move on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, they're not really truly passionate about it. They're, they're, they're kind of treating their audience as a piggy bank. So there's a, you know, there's a Goldilocks zone in between there where you should be asking yourself, okay, before we build this out with months and months of code, let's do the thought experiment and try to ask what, what would the early version of this look like where we're delivering the minimum viable product, the minimum set of, of, you know, you know, deliverables, like, are there ways that we can, cobble this together where it's still delivering a valuable result for the client but maybe on the back end some of the stuff that one day we'll we'll do with code and automation we're actually going to have to burn the midnight oil and actually piece things together and do it the manual way but for the client you know they're getting the end result because really software really anything but but particularly Okay, anything that you're selling is really just a delivery mechanism for this future result. It's a delivery mechanism, not just for that future result, but for the emotions that that future result brings. And so, when you understand that, it doesn't like the fact that it's software isn't really that important to the client. The client just wants the thing solved. You know, there are advantages, of course, to, to to software versus other ways of delivering something, but it's certainly not the only way to get that end result. You know, the, someone who's solving something with software, someone else could come along and say, Hey, we have this agency concierge service It's way more expensive, but it's the VIP red carpet. You give us money. And a few weeks later, we deliver you the end result. You've done nothing and you can just reap the rewards. And, you know, there's, there's everything in between. So, is there a concierge way to do it that maybe doesn't scale, but you can prove things out and prove that people are going to spend money because that's one of the most important things that you want to validate is that there's a, there's a market that has the pain point. You think they have money to spend and they're willing to spend it to solve this problem.
0: Yeah. I think that's really powerful. What you said, I was looking through my notes because I was just talking about this with the Jermaine Briggs for our call that we were talking about this guy's new book. And you know that there's people, you know, you can pay $30 a month to go to a gym membership or you can pay 10, $15,000 for liposuction mm-hmm. and people will go pay for the liposuction because like you said, they just want the result. They don't necessarily care what it is. And so there was a formula where it's like on the top is dream outcome times perceived likelihood of success divided by time delayed to results it multiplied by effort and sacrifice to get there. So on the top, you got dream outcome times likelihood of success. And so you times those two divided by time to result uh, times, you know, sacrifice and effort required. And that equals the value. And so that's why for liposuction, you can charge more because you pay 30 bucks for the gym, but it's going to take you six months, nine months, whereas you pay the 10 grand next week, you're going to have that flat belly that you wanted. And so that kind of speaks to like what you're saying, as opposed to just worrying about being the lowest price, just focus on delivering the result and having a minimum viable path of getting there. And maybe some things will be manual right now, but what you really want to do is make sure that when you make a bunch of sales, like you talked about with people, you know, they launch way too early. And I actually saw this when I was living in SoCal, California. And actually it's, Partially why I've never really done JVs and it's not to say anything about anyone that does JVs, but for me, I haven't done any JVs for my products and stuff, because when I was in some of the backdoor rooms, I saw there'd be like groups, like a syndicate of people where everyone was on a calendar promoting everybody. And it was like, oh, I got to get a product made because next week it's my turn to have everyone promote me. And what I didn't like about that was that I'm a big data guy, science guy, really about like results and, you know, all this stuff and, and the truth, you know, like I'm, I'm a real truth seeker. And I just felt like some of these products I'd seen the launches and I'd see comments of people saying like, I didn't get the result, but that comment is being drowned out by these other five gurus saying, this guy's amazing. This product's amazing. My team and I use it. So you've got this authoritative figure or these, this, this panel of authoritative figures saying this product is great. When really the guy just slapped this thing together to get it out the door because it's his turn to make money because they're all promoting each other in like a circle jerk fashion. So I've never done JVs because I wanted to have something that I can make work and even make work with paid ads first, which I feel like is kind of the ultimate, you know, I don't uh, the ultimate baptism so to speak, you know, before I go around to JVs and stuff. But and so just speaking to kind of what you say that that's you know focus on the value you can deliver i mean even look at elon musk he charged a couple hundred thousand for the first tesla but now you can Mm -hmm. get one for thirty thousand. so in the beginning he was like i can provide an electrically powered vehicle that'll have all these bells and whistles but it's not necessarily cheap so i think that's a really good answer for that the goldilocks principle and you know in between the two what are some of the key factors so someone's like okay but how do i promote this thing what are some of the key Talk about leverage points, and like you know, we talk about Perry Marshall, the 80/20, Richard Koch, the 80/20 guy. What are some of the 80/20 things? If you're going to do a promotion, what are the few things that you have to have in your promotion in order to make it, you know, get you results?
1: Okay, so in your promotion, so I'm going to answer it like this. I I don't know if this is how you meant when you asked the question, but I would say restructuring and working with the offer can be <laughs> really, 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 really transformative for the business. You know, the the offer. Could include everything from pricing to bonuses to guarantees, the way that people pay for it, which isn't just the pricing. It could be is there a payment plan? Is there a free trial? You know, all, all of those, all of those factors and more. So you could have the same product, but just how you offer it can make a huge dramatic difference. I mean, I think a lot of us have heard of the, you know, the success that Domino's Pizza had. Say what you will about their pizza, love it or hate it. You know their business was built on the back of a strong guarantee, and it was thirty. You know we're we're going to get it to you in thirty minutes or less, or the pizza's free. And there was a little bit of fine print on that, but that guarantee at the time was really bold and audacious because no, as far as I know, based on how the story was told to me, the no other pizza companies out there even came close. To that you basically got it whenever you got it. You know you, you get what you get, and. Right. Domino's was was offering the free guarantee. They said nothing about, at least at the time, it wasn't really, we have the freshest toppings or anything. It was just, we're going to get you your pizza there fast. So, you know, if you're, if you've got a party and everyone's got the munchies because they ate a bunch of brownies, you're like, they'll, they'll get the pizza there on time. No one's going to die of starvation.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love that. So You talked about, and I love that you mentioned that. So one of the most powerful things is the offer. So what are you offering to people? And the next most powerful thing is the who, because if you've got the world's greatest gourmet sandwich, but you're offering it to people on their way out from an all you can eat buffet, then you, even though you've got the best offer, try this, whoever the Gordon Ramsay, whoever you want to pick most amazing $10,000 burger but these people are just have just stuffed their face for three hours and left. It's an offer to market mismatch. So I like offer and then mm-hmm. the market, I think that's really powerful. And you mentioned price, bonuses, guarantees, payment terms, and of course we can't forget because deadline funnels, scarcity, deadline. urgency, the deadline. And that's so important. If you think about Robert Cialdini, he wrote this really influential book called Influence, funny enough. And it was based on all this scientific research on what motivates, like what, what are some causal things you can do to influence people's behavior and he came up with six principles reciprocity so in the book talks about how they're like the i'm going to butcher the name but the krishni something buddhist as the ones in orange yeah, they, they were trying to collect donations. And when they were first just panhandling, when they came to America, they were really poorly received. People didn't like it, oh, get away. So what they started doing is handing out daisies. And when they would give a daisy, people would say, what's this for? And they go, well, we're collecting donations because they, they found that 80% of the people that gave a daisy would actually give a donation. Whereas when they were panhandling, they were like, "Ah, oh, get away. So that was the principle of reciprocity. You give and you get. The next one was commitment and consistency. And so that's where by having someone make a small commitment to, in the book, he talks about this guy asks, can you help me with my son? I just need to get people to do these trials and you get people signed up for a magazine trial, but the trial would turn into a full-on subscription. And so that was a way people would kind of stay consistent. Although that sounds a little manipulative, but it's the same thing, right? If you say you're going to be somewhere. And if the, you know, hey, want to have a call tomorrow? Sure. Is there anything that would make you not show up to that call tomorrow? No, no, I'll be there. And then something happens, they're gonna try harder to be there because they want to be consistent with what they did. When someone's not consistent, that's we call those that's a psychological disorder. That's what well, a lot of these, these terms that we label people, that's what they are, social proof. If you were walking down the street and 20 people started running the other way in terror, you wouldn't stop. You would just start running with them be like, "What? what are we running from? Like, why are you guys all scared? You would just follow the herd. So social proof is really important. Authority, listen to your teacher. Listen to the police officer. Listen to the agencies, what they tell you. Liking. They've done all sorts of studies that people that are sexually more attractive can do better in sales or people who are more similar. I actually worked with the nonprofit Invisible Children. They were talking about Joseph Kony committed all these atrocities in northern Uganda, child soldiers, over 50,000 kids have been abducted. They were forced to murder their parents and, and siblings. It was horrific. And I helped launch Invisible Children Japan. But then the story was about these suffering, poor little black kids, and it just never really went anywhere. There was some, you know, there was some traction because there was a real passion behind it. But Coney 2012 became an online viral thing that got billions of views. And it was the first documentary they did where the main character was one of the founder's own son, like learning and talking about the story and so he was like the main character and you would see his emotions and it's my personal belief that that's part of what caused the trigger for it to become so explosive and actually get the U.S. government involved and these others was that one just exploded in the film the only difference between that film and all the other films was that it was a relatable child in the middle that was the focal point and so that likable thing I think is really important and the last one is scarcity Black Friday sales, people get trampled to get that TV because there's only three left. Like that scarcity, that urgency thing is huge. And so if you're going to launch a campaign, right? Offer the market and then try to include those six things because they are like, it's just like engines on a jet craft. If you've got reciprocity. So a lot of people do free trials. They enable test drives. They allow sampling. I mean, you see that at Costco and all these stores. Try a sample. So allow people to try it. You give them something of value, you might get it. Try to build in some sort of commitment consistency, either whether it's personal identity and who they are or you know, something along those lines, social proof, authority, be likable, friendly as much as you can. That's also comes into the offer where the terms, the payment schedules, nice. They like it. It's favorable. It doesn't seem like it's a it's a parasitic or abrasive, you know, and, and then and then scarcity, 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 scarcity. Why is scarcity so impactful?
1: So there have been a, a a lot of studies around this. Uh, one of the one of my favorite studies is I, I believe it took place at Cornell, but it's been replicated a few different times. And so if you imagine an in, in auditorium pre-COVID, so 300, 300 students or so can can fit in this like psychology 101 auditorium. And so Down the middle, there's an aisle. And so there's a left side and a right side. And so let's say the left side, they hand out the Cornell, a coffee mug with the Cornell logo on it. So nothing too fancy, but everyone gets it for free on the left side of the room. The right side of the room gets nothing. Okay. And then they hand out a piece of paper with one question on it. The difference is that on the left side is asked a certain way and on the right side is asked a different way. So here's the change. So the people with the mug are asked, how much would you have to be how much would you have to be paid by someone on the other side of the room for you to sell your mug okay now keep in mind they paid nothing for it right they were just given the mug but they now have it so the question is how much would someone have to pay you for you to sell it and then on the other side it's the opposite how much would you be willing to spend to buy that mug from someone on the other side of the room so the average actually turns out to be 2x so the people who already own or sorry, already have the mug, yeah, they own it, even though they were giving it to them free. They they I think they listed it at $5 as in terms of like what they would need to get paid. And the people on the other side of the room said that they were willing to spend $250. Okay. Now, if we were totally rational creatures, you know we would come up with relatively the same answer, right? It's the same coffee mug. So why, why would there be any difference? Well, the difference has to do with something that scientists call the endowment effect. So once you once you feel like you already have something, you know, you you don't want to lose it. And this is, you know, people theorize that this is hardwired into us into after, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of evolution, you know, hunting for resources, collecting resources, things like that. So we, we value what is scarce. You know, if water is scarce, like we're, we're trying to find it. If food is scarce, we're trying to find that. There's a whole bunch of other things that we were just hardwired, like our survival depended on us going after these resources that were scarce and so it's the theory is that it's really part of our operating system that we want what is either taken away like we value we value what we already have more and than like we, we the fear, fear of loss, loss the fear of loss is more powerful than the, the desire for gain pretty much and,
0: and the FOMO fear of missing out fear of loss
1: yeah yeah yeah. yeah and and so and so there's there's a lot of ways that this can be used but you know w- when we were talking about the power of having a unique offer and a special offer you know one of the things is that if it's available all the time then it's not really special is special, it yeah. it's, it's it's sort of like the uh, the scene in the Incredibles Incredibles 1 where it's something like well if if everyone was special like no one would be right yeah. they're talking about the superheroes and so you know if, if you're if you're if your special offer is available 365, 24 seven, then it's not really special. And so having that deadline really makes someone make that decision. And so what we find is that there's a whole bunch of people who are leaning into your messaging. They're clicking your links, they're attending your webinar, they're watching the replays, they're checking out your sales pages and your your payment pages. There's a portion of these people that automatically will, you know, they realize that this is for them, they jump on board, they're fast movers, and and they take action. But there's a whole bunch of other people who they're leaning into your message and they're interested. And it's not the deadline that, it's not like they weren't interested in the deadline, convince them. It's that they're they're already interested. They're resonating. Your message is resonating with them. It's the deadline that gets them to take action. And if you don't have that deadline, then they're going to delay. And one of the things that I learned from my days of reading the Zig Ziglar books, going back to that, and being face-to-face with, with clients is that the delay of the sale is the death of the sale. And you see this in one-on-one selling. Like if someone's like, oh man, the Jack, this sounds really, really interesting. You know, what I want to do is I want to go on vacation for, a week and then I'll get back to you in about a week or two. And you're like, oh my gosh, like you, you know that the chances of this actually mm-hmm. coming through just drop to close to zero. Because if someone is like if they're truly interested and they're not going to pull the trigger right now, your chances of closing that sale drop substantially. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I tell people is that a, a deadline is not a you know something that's going to resurrect a dead offer for a market that isn't interested or doesn't have the money to spend and your product isn't one that people people want i don't know if perry came up with this phrase but i heard it from working with him he said you can't steer a parked car so in other words your your offer has to have traction with an audience already there has to be demand for it. you have to have some level of even minor level of success with it that then you can craft a deadline into your offer and and that will certainly accelerate things. So again, you can't move a parked car if if you're if no one wants what, what it is that you're offering or you haven't positioned it well and your messaging's horrible. Adding a deadline to it isn't going to improve it, but for the majority of our clients, for for everyone who is a client, you know what they find is that by using Dublin Funnel, what it does, it gives them the ability to dramatically increase their sales conversion rates and to speed up the rate at which they're turning leads into clients. Those are both very, very valuable.
0: And I can speak to this because my listeners know that I pretty I I vet people on my show pretty well, and if I haven't vetted them, I kind of try to make it clear indirectly, but. You know, one of the beautiful things about Deadline Funnels and part of even why we're talking is I personally have come to Deadline Funnels after using other deadline tools. And one of the issues is the ability for the visitor to your web page or whatever to gamify your site and get around it. And what Deadline Funnels has really done is it tracks via IP, I guess. Or I'm not sure, but there's, there's
1: five different ways we, we track.
0: Yeah. So it makes it that when you put a deadline there. It's real. And you know, I know some people might be like, but what if someone wants it? and I want them to get it. But you have to understand is you're not in business for one week. You're in business for the long haul. So you really need to be able to enforce your deadlines and train people that if they don't act during that time frame, it's gone and it's gone forever. And so that's what deadline funnels really allows you to do. And it's got some neat features like you can put timers in your emails and all that stuff. But I'm a fan and deadlines, you know, you haven't said this, but I've actually wondered this if why you created deadline funnels is partially because in working with tools like Survey Funnel and working with things like Perry Perry Marshall, if you realize how powerful it was to have dead strong deadlines in your promotions, and if that led you. And if that's not why, you need to put that in your marketing because I feel like with your background and all the people you've worked with and all the campaigns you've been involved with, for you to come out and say, I made deadline funnels because, in all my marketing experience, the ones that had solid deadlines that were well enforced outperformed the ones that had like no deadline by such a margin. I wanted to make it easy for people because that's the real thing is with online tech, it's, if you're not techie, it's not user friendly to have it say Like you have to try to upload your manually changing pages and deleting pages and going into your software programs and changing URLs. And even if you use automation tools like Infusionsoft, you gotta do custom fields and decision. It's just, it's a complicated thing. And so the fact that it's just an easiest done one and all in one solution, is a real huge value prop in and of itself. So I,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you were asking short, just a few seconds <laughs> ago how, how, it, how it came to be. And, and so I, I was working with Perry, but also doing some of my own, like I mentioned before I had a side hustle that I basically, my entrepreneurial side kicked back in. And so I, I knew from actually the, the book that you mentioned, Cialdini, that one of the most effective and powerful uh, psychological triggers is urgency and and scarcity having a deadline, but I didn't want to use it in a way that was that was fake or manipulative. And so, what? So, let me back up a second. There was a time where it wasn't immediately obvious. Um, Perry was one of the first to really advocate for generating leads, and that over time you would make way more money by generating leads, having an opt in, and then developing a relationship through well-chosen automated emails rather than sending people directly to a sales page. That seems super obvious now, but there was a time where clicks were so cheap. Like you get AdWords clicks for 5 cents a click, 10 cents a click. So the the thinking at the time was why wouldn't, why would I mess around with all that extra work? Let's just send them to the sales page, make the difference between what it costs me to get them there and and the revenue that I'm making and, you know, just move on with life. And so Perry took a more long-term view that was really like, Working on his team and having been on his newsletter for a while, I believe that as well. So he was using, I think he still is using, Infusionsoft at the time. And so I'm thinking, okay, I want to use a deadline, but I want it to be. What if? What if there was a way that we could incorporate this so that when they enter into an email sequence in Infusionsoft or Aweber or whatever the system was, there wasn't ConvertKit and all these other things at the time. But if they entered into the email sequence, what if the deadline could be real and true and genuine, but be personalized and specific to that person as they went through that email sequence. And so I, the, the very next thought that followed was, well, obviously someone else has figured this out, so I'll just go and find it and we can just start using that. And so I looked and looked and looked, and the more I looked, the more I realized not only has no one created it, but the only stuff that's available out there is just cheap little countdown clocks that you stick on your website and then they start over and it's just a bunch of BS. And so yeah. that's, not what, that's not what we wanted to do. Um, And so I decided, okay, well, I'll use the programming skills that I had had learned a few years back, and I'll build the the basic version 1.0 of that. And then it turned out that other people had the same desire as well to increase their conversion rate, but without having to choose, okay, am I going to, am I going to use this particular psychological tool, but I'm going to have to trade off, you know, how I sleep at night. I'm going to have to trade off how I feel about myself when I look in the mirror. What if you didn't have to make that trade off and you could say, look, it is 100% authentic for everyone because it's assigned as they come in. And there's a multitude of different ways that we keep that accurate so that when your emails go out, Even though they're automated emails, what they're saying in the emails is, in fact, what is happening. So that if day five's email says, hey, tonight's the deadline, and they wait until day six, they can't get it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that because that's the reason why holiday event market. I mean, so many of our calendar events are really there for commercial purposes to have a specific reason why you need to act and why you need to act now. And so I, I exactly like you said, even if you want to be integrity, you know, even if you plan on messaging everybody that buys after and mailing them, it's just such a pain in the butt, right? Like to to have to track who bought after the deadline versus before because, you know, because of internet tech at the time and even now like, you know, I've got to do these Mickey Mouse things and run around and, you know, this person bought but the timer had expired, and now we can email them, but these other people think we're being disingenuous. It just causes a whole host of problems. And so So it's a good, it's a good fix. Now I know we're almost up to the, or we might even be at the top of the hour. but I did have a couple more questions I wanted to ask. And since I got you here and I'm keeping you from the beach already, what's another five minutes? So one was, (laughs) what do you feel were some of the habits that were really important for you that have helped you on this path of success, the daily, weekly rituals that you feel have really benefited you?
1: So my answer has changed over time. I'll try to keep this short because I feel like I've been some long-winded in some of my answers, but there was a time where I was really struggling to try to figure out, I'd made some mistakes and some investments of capital in another software company that I just took too long to launch. And then I ran out of money, ran out of passion. And I, you know I, I had to figure out like, how did I get here? How did I blow this money? And how do I avoid doing this again? Does this mean I'm not gonna be an entrepreneur? Like, how am I gonna do this? And so at what I started doing was I started journaling and basically it was my way of debugging the software that was inside of my head and you know going through and and writing down some of the stuff that was percolating up and and just getting it down on paper and just seeing where it went and you know there was a lot of days where there wasn't really anything monumental that came out of it but it was it was the the handful of days where I felt like it's sort of like sitting on the psychiatrist's couch like you have a breakthrough and and you and you see it as staring back at you in black and white you're like okay i see i see the flaw in my thinking and if i can if i can get around or i can at least see how this belief could hold me back i may not know yet how to get around it but if i can if i can untangle myself from this belief just imagine what i'd be able to do so i would i would say if someone is 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 in there in a place where they're struggling and they feel like they're being held back and they maybe even self-sabotaging then i would highly recommend that as a habit beyond that i would say recently for the past several years what I have personally found to be extremely beneficial is ongoing, consistent daily meditation. Because, like, the best example that I can, that I've heard, the best analogy that I've heard is that it's the when, when you, when you do this often enough, meditation is like being inside your living room watching a rainstorm outside rather than being stuck outside in the rainstorm getting soaking wet. So, it's not that the emotions don't come up. But you don't get carried away with them and entangled in them and have them basically controlling the script from that point on. Like you, 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 you can recognize them coming up, you can identify them and not you know, interact with them if, if, if it's if it's not a helpful thing for you to be thinking at the moment. And the reason why that I've personally found that to be helpful is because the the more the further I get in business, the more it becomes less about you know, me writing the code or me writing the copywriting is about attracting talented people to my team, which oftentimes means that these talented people know way more than I do about a certain topic or they're more experienced or they're just flat out better. Even at some things that I used to consider like, hey, this is one of my core skill sets. And I bring someone on the team who frankly is better than me at that particular skill set. They may not have the entire stack of skills that I have that makes me unique, but for that particular skill set, they're actually better than me. And so how do you deal with, you know, uh, very talented, intelligent team members who are giving you, con- you know con- contrarian advice, or they're looking at an idea that you put out there and they say, we don't think that's the best way to go about it. I think there's a lot of people that can't put their ego aside and listen to advice and take feedback. And for me personally, it's been easier to do that and to listen to my team without being wrapped up in the emotions you know, by having this habit of meditation. So that's, that's something that's been powerful for me.
0: Yeah. Good. So daily journaling, regular journaling, daily meditation, anything else you would add to that? Those are fantastic. And the reasons why too,
1: I would say, I I don't think it's daily, but I would say weekly, you know, several times a week, making sure that you schedule time to get out in nature. That could be walking on the beach, running on the beach. I like to play tennis. I like to kite surf, you know, but I like to I like to combine, you know. Going to the gym is is fine. There was a time I, I did a whole bunch of that, and I, I still enjoy going to the gym. But being out in nature and getting your exercise that way, I think, gets a lot of it checks a lot of boxes at the same time. So I think, you know, even even if you're at a point in your business where you feel like every single minute needs to be devoted to your business, it, it's really really important to still block out. 30 minutes here 30 minutes there on your weekly calendar so that you are getting out you're seeing the sunlight you're you know breathing fresh air you know (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. so recharging the batteries
0: in japan they call that tree bathing it's like a thing it's like a legitimate thing yeah they've got like in a lot of office areas i actually got into reflexology which is like massaging your feet because they would have you can google it too they have like pebbled walkways but there's different size pebble and it's like each tile is different size and shapes to try to put oh, wow. a different way and i found this because i lived in i lived in tokyo for three years and a lot of offices would have a garden rest area for people and they would even have these little just like a little loop almost like around a playground type thing but it was for mm-hmm. reflexology but they call it it's tree bathing that's like a thing like to go and bathe in the trees for Thirty minutes. It's like it's a it's a thing. It's a it's a yeah. And even in Vietnam, CPU. I don't know if they call it that, but all the condos and that do that. But tree bathing. So that's fantastic. For journaling, we have a thing we recommend when you journal to think about your career. Your fifteen categories: career, finances, family, friends, business relationships, health, dreams, goals, problems, charitable endeavors that you could be doing, should be doing, maybe are aren't happiness, spiritual learning, to quit doing, to do. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful thing. A lot of people have the answers inside them, but they just, like you said, they just don't get it on paper or it's the, it's the idea you don't think about your life goals until New Year's. And you're like, wow, that was my, I meant to do that last year, but then life got in the way. And so just like you said, like just sometimes, it's, you know, nothing miraculous, but you even, you just see the same thing there over and over. It like gets to like, I need to stop writing about this, or I need to make it happen in the daily meditation. I think that's fantastic. Something that's really. Yeah, sick. by the way,
1: by the way, the meditation takes 10 minutes a day. Like everyone has 10 minutes. Yeah. So yeah. I would recommend like pick an app I use. I personally like the Sam Harris app, but you know, if, if you want to use MindSpace or whatever you, you want to use, like I would just, I would just think of it as, okay, for the next 30 days, I'm going to take 10 minutes. Like I would link it with something that comes from James Clear's atomic habit. So if you, if you're a coffee drinker, you go, okay. Every time the first coffee of the morning before I have it, I'm going to spend 10 minutes. I can plug in, plug in the, the headphones, do 10 minutes of meditation. And, and you can, you can tell yourself, look, I, it, I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a granola, you know, hippy dippy. Like I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to plug in the headphones, close my eyes and just listen to the person for 10 minutes and then move on with the rest of your day. I think over time, just putting in those reps, I think that you will, re- someone would receive benefit from it. Even if it's just slowing down and thinking about your breathing you know, even if you don't become a full-time meditator, just like actually slowing down, breathing, becoming in tune with the pathos that are going on 10 minutes, like literally 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes. There's no one who doesn't have 10 minutes.
0: What really hit it home for me to make it a priority was someone, my dad actually, my step-adopted dad said this, he said, silence is part of music as much as noises. So we Mm -hmm. wake up and we're so focused. I got to do this. And I got to be so busy, but silence is part of, you know, like, that's it silence is as much music as as noises and so that five minutes to ten minutes of silence like you said can be like sitting indoors during a rainstorm and really just allow you to just kind of gain perspective on things i love this this is such a great call I've got a couple of pages of notes. We covered some fantastic topics from habits for success to key principles of a successful promotion, to how to find the, your Goldilocks zone in terms of do you launch too early, too late, and the pros and cons of both. Some of the key mistakes that entrepreneurs have made from just starting out to even at the multi-million dollar and above level. We also dispelled some myths, like talking about you're only one sales letter away from a bazillion dollars. Like Yes, but we also covered that there's actually eight factors. There's more than just the sales that you need to worry about you do need sales coming in but you can't outsell a bad product you know you can't you just can't you just you just can't you have to have everything in place You talked to really a lot about like you know charging what you're worth and understanding the value of what you do, not just the, the raw cost of your materials. Like what is the value of the solution to people and maybe being willing to take fewer sales and, and exchange for making a business that works at the price point you need in order to make it your full-time thing. I also talked about some great little hacks about, you know, apprentice get paid to learn the skills apprentice under someone or just volunteer. Hey, can I volunteer at your business? I just want to learn this skill. I will work for you for free to hours a day, you know, or I'll show up on Saturdays. Do whatever you need. There's just a ton of ways to do it. We also talked about key leverage skills and how, like, how to make more money in the same 24 hours. I mean, the reality is, is that everybody only has 24 hours a day. So how do you make more money than someone else? Is you you generate more value from that time, and you do that through leverage, whether it's capital, whether it's real estate, whether it's teams, whether it's code and software. You have to find some way to leverage yourself. And I just, I mean, I got pages of notes. I could go over here all over deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. You know, again, if you're listening to this, you may want to listen again, because there's just some fantastic stuff in here. I've talked about the key components of a really good offer, price bonuses, guarantees, payment terms, scarcity, and urgency. There's just so much in here. It's such a good call. Jack, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we go, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you?
1: No, I think, I think you did a great job. This was, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the interview. So no, if, if anyone's interested in checking out Dublin Funnel, you can go to DublinFunnel.com. We have a 14 day free trial. Go check it out.
0: Definitely check it out. Add it to your campaigns. I guarantee if you're already making sales, it will give you a bump. And really that's it, Jack. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure, my friend.
1: Thank you.